Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Electricity demand is skyrocketing, and the Ford government is finally taking some action. But is it too late? Stellantis and LG Energy Solutions have now reached another deal. Marvin Breider, professor of the Degree School of Business at McMaster University, is going to join us and talk about that. And a website spread of disinformation about an event in Canada. But why did major Indian outlets treat it as news? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting announcement, and some people are surprised announcement from the Ontario government yesterday. Uh, they are eyeing at their first new large-scale nuclear plant in more than 30 years. Energy Minister Todd Smith uh, made the announcement, actually. Uh, the government's looking at a new plant to generate about 4,800 megawatts. That's enough to uh, power about 4.8 million homes. It's going to be on the uh, site of Bruce Power's current generating station on the shores of Lake Huron. Here's what the minister had to say. Overall, a large-scale new nuclear reactor project could require a lead time of a decade or more from the start of federal approvals to deployment. Initiating this early planning is going to ensure that the province has a reliable, low-cost and clean option ready and available here at Bruce Power to power the next major international investment. The new homes that are being built in the province and industries and sectors across the province as they grow and look to electrify. Well, so that's the announcement from yesterday. And uh, to get some uh, perspective on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Chris Kiefer. Uh, Dr. Kiefer is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, Chris, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Bill, always a pleasure to chat with you. We we surprised by this. I mean, this, this seems to run kind of contrary to what Ford had been talking about for the last little while. They they didn't seem extremely interested in in putting much money into nuclear power, uh, and they didn't really have a plan B. I mean, he killed a number of green projects when he first got elected, and then he seemed a little uh, reticent about this. But this seems like a full fledged commitment now. Yeah, you know, I would say this is not a huge surprise um, if we're thinking about the last six months, but certainly. You know, stretching back a little farther in time, two or three years ago, I, I this wouldn't have been in my wildest dreams. Um, but I will say that I think the Ford government is probably the most pro-nuclear government we've had in, in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, they're making uh, major, major commitments. And it makes sense. Um, you know, you're talking about the negotiations with Stellantis. Um, you know, the Ford government's plan is is really to attract a lot of manufacturing back, um, to welcome a lot of new immigrants, build a lot of new housing. All of that requires a lot of power. Um, and it's not going to be politically popular if the power is not there. Um, you know, if the manufacturing uh, facilities ultimately don't show up because they have concerns about brownouts or insufficient power demand, um, or certainly if if brownouts were to affect their output down the road. So, you know, it's easy, as I've said previously on the program, Bill, to, to you know, build uh, electric vehicles, batteries, heat pumps, the end user uh, products. Um, but it's good to see some maturity coming um, to the energy and climate debate uh, by focusing on building the generation that we require uh, to power all of these uh, end-use consumer products. And we are talking about doubling or tripling our grid. We are talking about electrifying, you know, vital, vital things like your heating in your home, like your car. Um, and it only makes sense that that's done not only in a carbon-free manner, but in a manner that is ultra, ultra reliable because we can't afford to have uh, brownouts and blackouts affecting critical infrastructure and, and even just our daily lives in terms of our home heat and, and mobility. Well, it used to be the norm for a period of time there, back in the days of, uh, I guess, Ernie Eves and early in that. I mean, before we, we made a, a commitment to this sort of stuff, uh, we all remember the big, huge one we had a, a number of years ago in the summertime where power was out in a number of days in a row. And I'm sure that's still fresh on some people's minds. But I, I guess the thing that surprised me, though, Chris, is uh, 
is like I say, they seem, you know, kind of uh, non-committal about nuclear before. And maybe it was the cost because you and I talked about that. This is not going to be cheap. Uh, you know, to do this over in Lake Huron, and, and we still, and we'll talk about Pickering in just a second, uh, the dollar figures may have scared them off a little bit, but you're right. If they're going to make the commitment to EVs and battery production, they've got to do something like this. There's really no plan B other than this, is there? Yeah, I mean, so our, our existing nuclear fleet provides the cheapest source of power in Ontario after our legacy hydro dams, many of which are over 100 years old, like the Adam Beck Dam at, at Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. So the value proposition of nuclear, particularly over the long term, uh, is incredible. And again, provides very affordable power that underpins the reliability um, of, of our province. Um, so, you know, the numbers are going to look high. Frankly, they were very high for the Green Energy Act, some of which uh, the contracts were canceled when Ford came into power over the scandal, basically, of, of the way that the Green Energy Act drove up rates. Just to put that in context, in inflation-adjusted dollars, the Green Energy Act... 20 years contracts um, will cost us $60 billion over the life of uh, of those wind and solar assets, which are short-lived. We're talking 20 years. The entire historic Candu fleet cost about $58 billion, and over its lifetime of about 80 years, um, will produce 17 times the amount of power. And it's power when we need it. You know, we're going in a heat wave right now. Wind does terrible when our summer demand peaks uh, because of all the air conditioners that are running. That's really the high risk period for brownouts. If we don't have enough generation as the summer, you would have to 20 times the existing wind fleet um, just in order to get the, the full value of what we've installed here in Ontario. So clearly that is not a solution um, that is not going to power uh, the province reliable reliably keep the lights on and you know frankly in, in my personal interest keep keep the hospitals uh <laughs> humming and, and electrified well and at that point by the way when i say i was surprised by the announcement i'm pleased by it i mean i'm you know the, the, as i mentioned on my uh, my commentary on chml earlier this morning uh, they've had a, a, an electricity epiphany here and it's about time because they've been kind of dragging their heels on this so i'm glad they did it uh, I think it's the smart answer to do this. I guess the, the obvious question here is, okay, well, this is great about uh, what's going to happen in Bruce. What about Pickering? Um, so the minister actually did address that yesterday, and he said the government's intention is to refurbish Pickering. So this is music to my ears. My organization mm -hmm. published the Save Pickering report, um, which I think was influential in the announcement last September that the government was going to look into life extension and refurbishment at the plant. Um, of course, there's a feasibility study ongoing, and it needs to go through the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, as all things nuclear do. Uh, but this is very promising, and I'm quite confident that we will see the Pickering Nuclear Station refurbished. You know, again, just to get back to the the cost issue, um, I mean, I think your listeners um, would be rightfully skeptical to say, "Hey, nuclear power has been expensive recently in the Western world." You know, we hear about the Vogel plant in the United States. We hear about some of the difficulties over in Europe. I want to make the case that Ontario is different here. Those countries, they hadn't built anything or done any nuclear mega projects in over 20 years. They had a supply chain that was atrophied. No workers that had actually, in their living lifetime, worked in the sector. Um, and frankly, project management skills that were poor. In Ontario, um, our nuclear sectors ramped up because we have been uh, refurbishing our candy reactors, which means basically swapping out uh, the nuclear components of those plants to get them to an as good or better than new condition. Those are mega projects in their own right. And, you know, as we know, with airports, with hydro dams, with all kinds of, uh, with, of in infrastructure, we've seen cost overruns everywhere in the Western world. Well, OPG and Bruce Power are either on schedule or in the case of OPG with Darlington Unit 3, they're six months ahead of schedule on this, you know, multi-billion dollar nuclear mega project. 
Um, so, you know, what I'll say is that new nuclear to do it well, to minimize construction risk requires institutional excellence from the top, from the project management, all the way down to that skilled trades worker um, who knows exactly how to do the welds that are necessary. And we have that in Ontario. That is probably one of the most precious resources that we have is the human resources, the skilled labor. Um, and that's why I'm confident um, that we will be able to deliver this project. It, probably it's going to be new candy reactors um, up in Bruce Power. And because we own that technology and 96% of the supply chain is here in province, when we invest a dollar in Candu, we get a buck 40 back in local economic activity because of high wages paid to that skilled workforce. So it's it's a win on climate, a win on clean air, a win on medical isotopes, um, and it's a, it's a win on jobs in the economy. So, I mean, I think this is a very, very big good news story. Well, uh, when you and I started talking about this a few years ago, I mean, it, there was a lot of skepticism as to whether or not the government was going to make this commitment. So this has got to be like Christmas morning for you. It is. It is. I mean, there's challenges that lie ahead still. But, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, one of them is the uh, federal environmental impact assessment uh, policy. And here the, the feds have really put a stumbling block um, right in front of the the starting line of, 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 a, of a sprint of a hundred meter sprint, shall we say. They have a commitment to net zero electricity by 2035 all across the country. And yet the environmental impact assessment process they have for new nuclear on an existing nuclear site, one of the most environmentally monitored sites, essentially building a new plant within stone's throw of the existing plant is estimated to take between six and 10 years. Um, that already gets us into the mid, like 2033, and we've got to be net zero by 2035. I mean, this is critical infrastructure. The Americans are speeding up and fast tracking their environmental impact assessments, particularly on old coal sites or on existing nuclear sites. So Canada really needs to uh, to follow along with that. Obviously, not take any any shortcuts when it comes to uh, stewarding the environment, but these these assessments are actually getting in the way of of emissions reductions and climate action. So that's a kind of something that probably people don't think about a lot, but something. That's that's very important in terms of uh, getting this done and and safeguarding our, our electricity system. Well, just based on some of the past conversations you've had on this program, uh, I was concerned about it when I heard the minister's announcement yesterday because I, I, I kind of looked at this and say, okay, on this side of the ledger, you've got their commitment to EVs and we want to see this many EVs on the road by such and such a date. Uh, we want to have this many new homes built by such and such a date. And at the same time, you've got uh, the uh, the announcement earlier, of course, uh, from uh, from the folks who are monitoring all this sort of stuff right now that, that listen, this is what you're going to need in future. You're going to pretty much double your output. Uh, the race is yeah. on right now, Chris. Uh, uh, you know, are, are you worried about the time frame here? Can we meet those targets? And that's a lot of time with, with the all the, are, as you say, with yeah. all the, you know, the checks and balances that have to be done. Targets are, are very, very ambitious. And to be honest, the politicians have not been serious. Um, it's good to see some of that maturity coming to the decision making. Um, you know, excellent to see this announcement. Just to put these numbers in perspective, because you hear, you know, 4,800 megawatts. What, what does that mean? I didn't know what that meant five or six years ago before I started paying attention to the sector. Um, you know, the Pickering Nuclear Station, which we were just talking about, that we were going to essentially mothball and, and decommission, that nuclear plant alone. If we were to fully electrify the entire light duty fleet of Ontario's 7 million cars and SUVs and light trucks, we could do that all. We could we could power all those battery electric vehicles with just the output from the Pickering nuclear station. 
So it gives you a sense of how much energy is coming out of these plants, which exist on, you know, the, the, the footprint of, uh, you know, a shopping mall or a Costco. Um, this is an incredible energy source. It's environmentally friendly because again, of the tiny land footprint that it has, the very small amount of mining that's required because uranium is such an energy dense fuel. And of course, because we completely contain the waste stream and have no air pollution or water pollution or carbon pollution as a result. So um, you know, again, just to put those those numbers in perspective, this 4,800 megawatts, as you're saying, 4.8 million new homes, that would get the entire uh, vehicle fleet done. You know, uh, transportation is 25% of our emissions. Um, we've got we've got some major major work ahead of us, but again, uh, we can do that with a reliable source of electricity, which is very affordable and where the entire economic benefit is kept here in province. You know, putting up wind and solar. Uh, we don't manufacture those things here in Ontario. Um, we'd be stimulating the Chinese economy, for instance, and the kind of job quality is very poor. These are construction projects and there's no parking lots at a wind farm uh, or a solar farm. And you saw the unions and uh, the skilled trades were very, very happy with yesterday's announcement. Um, and frankly, there's a real need with that announcement to encourage more young people to go into engineering and to go into the skilled trades. That's going to be another challenge that we face. Um, but I think it's a really exciting one and one full of opportunity. Well, and it's a, I don't want to get into, this, you know, try to sell this, this idea, but I mean, it's a very rewarding too. I mean, I, I knew a gentleman, he's retired now. Mm -hmm. Uh, and lived in Ancaster, just in uh, outside of Hamilton. He drove to Pickering every day. That was his job for uh, I think twenty years. Uh, that's where he wanted to live. Yeah. But he loved the job. Thought he was, you know, great. And he was well paid for it too. So this is, yeah. I, I think, solidifying that that in that industry. Not quite aside from the the need, I guess, that we're, we're going to have as as a, as a province. Uh, it's it's a boon to, to unions certainly. But I, I mean, it it kind of reinforces this idea about skilled trades. No, absolutely. I mean, I was talking with a gentleman up there yesterday, a member of the Society of United Professionals. He said, you know, Kandu Nuclear has fed my family for the last 50 years. You know, his grandfather was involved in building Douglas Point. Um, he supervises 400 uh, engineers and, and highly skilled workers at the Bruce Nuclear Station. Uh, you know, with the refurbishments, Bruce is going to go another 40 years. But with this new build, we're talking in, you know, 100 years plus. And, you know, talking with uh, decision makers, I mean, with great power comes great responsibility. Bad policy can have major impacts that are far greater than just the impacts of a, of a single person and their personal relationships. But good policy choice, um, I think, is, is an incredible legacy for, for politicians who are usually quite cynical about and, you know, if you're involved in the planning and building of another new large nuclear station, you're locking in 10,000 jobs for upwards of probably 70 or 80 years. Um, that's that's an incredible thing. You're locking in a complex high tech economy here in Ontario with a lot of opportunity and you're, you're locking in uh, responsible green energy um, for the long term, not for not for 20 years with a with a wind turbine, but, you know, for the full 70 or 80 um, power when we need it. Um, so, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is good news and, um, I'm pretty cynical about politics and I'm not a partisan <laughs> guy, uh, but I have to say, I'm very happy with this announcement. Well, you know, yesterday was the announcement and, and uh, took great applause and as understandably as it should be, uh, now I want them to get down to the paperwork because there's a lot of work to be done before they start putting shovels in the ground. So we'll uh, follow that progress too. As always, uh, Chris, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Absolutely a pleasure. And if people want to learn more, go to c4ne.ca. That's four is in the number sign. We have a new report out called The Case for Can Do, which I think is a good backgrounder into, into this new nuclear renaissance we're, we're thinking about in Ontario. Okay. Get our listeners to check it out again. Dr. Chris Kiefer, president of the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Take care, Doc. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Stellantis and LG began building the battery plant last year, but halted work to negotiate funding that would match what the United States was offering through its Inflation Reduction Act. Which is hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, performance incentives. Ontario Economic Development Minister Vic Fideli says this deal mirrors the benefits that would have been received in the U.S. It's $5 billion is the third of the $15 billion deal, but that it's money that we won't receive if they weren't here. The rest of the tax breaks would come from the federal government over a 10-year period. Fideli says another $10 billion in new business is expected to land in Ontario to supply this plant and a planned Volkswagen plant in St. Thomas. Matt Carty, Global News. Thanks, Matt. Uh, that's going to uh, serve as the foundation for our discussion with our next guest. This is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML Hamilton. I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the discussion. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, I, I guess this is a good news story to be sure, uh, but Stellanus says they're back now, and this time they really mean it. Uh, but there's a lot more money on the table, wasn't there? Yes. So, yeah, let's start with the good news side of this. Uh, Stellantis and their partner, LG, that's a name you might know on appliances. They were building a factory in Windsor to produce batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, and suddenly that construction stopped about two months ago. They said, wait a minute, you know, yes, thank you, Ontario, and thank you, Canada, for contributing to the capital costs. But look, we saw the deal you struck with Volkswagen and uh, that there were operating subsidies in there. And we want the same treatment that you gave Volkswagen. If you don't do that, we may take this plant south of the border. Don't want to call that extortion, but that's, in essence, they had people over a barrel. And so now we've learned that both parties, the federal government and the Ontario government, have uh, had their negotiation and they have offered uh, a similar deal, a similar deal that they gave Volkswagen to Stellantis. And that seems to make Stellantis happy. It's $5 billion from the Ontario government over 10 years, assuming, assuming that various production targets are hit. $10 billion from the federal government over 10 years, again, assuming those targets are hit. And finally, also assumes that the subsidies offered by the United States continue. In other words, in this deal, if the uh, federal government in the United States changes the, the deal, maybe eliminates some of these subsidies, then Canada and Ontario can follow suit and save that money. So it's not money up front, it's money you earn down the road, and there is a possibility they won't get all of it. From that, Stellantis has announced that construction is resuming immediately, and this plant will be built uh, and operating probably by 2025 in Windsor. Let me ask you about, about those implications, because as there is, I guess, with just about everything with big business these days, it's intertwined with politics. Uh, there's going to be a presidential election in 2024. Uh, there may be a change of administrations. We don't know at this stage just what's going to happen. Uh, but this is Biden's plan. Is, is there a, When these guys are looking down the road and saying, well, if the U.S. drops these things, then we can too. Is there an anticipation that if there's a change of government down there that, uh, that the Biden plan goes out the window? Yes. The short answer to that is yes. So this is part of a, a bill that was passed from the Biden administration called the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, it seems kind of odd with a title like that, Inflation Reduction Act, that in that plan there would be these subsidies to, to uh, create electric vehicle operations. But there were. And there are lots of Republicans. Remember, Mr. Biden is a Democrat. There are lots of Republicans that have vowed, even if there isn't a change in presidency, if both the Senate and the House fall under Republican control, one of the first things they're going to do is repeal that Inflation Reduction Act 
And if they repeal it, there go the subsidies and there go the commitments that Canada and Ontario have made to these companies. So why we're doing this, why we're giving them this money is simply to match what they'd have in the United States, because we want those plants here rather than the United States. It's the cost of doing business on a global scale. Well, and to that point, then, I'm sure Stellantis and and maybe to a certain extent, even uh, Volkswagen uh, looked at the political situation down there and think maybe it's a little more stable here. Uh, Even though I I understand that, you know, there could be a federal election here at any time, too. And if I recall, Mr. Polyev, uh, who's the leader of the opposition now, if if he were to be successful in that election, uh, he's not really crazy about these deals that the government's signing right now. But I, I, I think it would be problematic if he decided he was going to nix these things. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're correct. These global companies take a look and they see the world differently than you and I do. They don't actually see the same political boundaries. In other words, a plant in Windsor might as well just be located in Detroit. It's all in the same general area. So they, they feel quite comfortable locating in either of the two countries. And so they turn to those two countries and say, look, if we were going to build a factory somewhere in that area, of Ontario and Michigan, what have you, uh, what what can you do for us? What can you do to make us feel more welcome? And so they knew what the United States was going to do. And they came to Canada and said, you know, we, we think we'd probably like to be there. We kind of like the Canadian dollar. We like the, the worker climate. We like the union we'd have to face. Um, what can you do for us? And so Ontario and, and in Canada stepped up. The big difference between the Volkswagen deal and the deal with Stellantis is that it's Ontario that has stepped up much more. In the, in the Volkswagen deal, there's roughly $13 billion of subsidies over 10 years, but that's almost all from the federal government. This time around, uh, the federal government insisted that Ontario become more of a partner. So one third being borne by Ontario, two thirds being borne by Ottawa. Is this the template going forward now? I mean, you know, let's assume uh, that all the the good news uh, and bravado that we're hearing from politicians about EVs and EV production and battery production, uh, suppose it all comes true. And, you know, we finally get the stuff out of the ground up north and we start these production. Other companies are going to be interested. Do they look at this as as the, you know, ground zero for this kind of technology and we all want to live and and start our plants in, in Ontario? Right. So, Bill, when you may not remember this, but when you and I talked about the Volkswagen deal, you asked what the long term implications were there. And I said, I don't think the deal in itself itself is bad. Yes, it talks about doing a subsidy over a 10 year period. But look, if we want to protect the Canadian auto industry and the world is going towards electric vehicle, again, it's a cost that we have to do to make sure that those jobs uh, and that kind of technology stays here in Ontario. However, I said at the time, my only worry was that then this would become a baseline for other deals. And these may be deals outside of the auto industry. In other words, take a a steel company, take uh, Stelco or Defasco. If they're doing something, uh, investing in green technology, and they say, well, wait a minute, you gave those people those kinds of subsidies. How about giving us a little something? And so I do worry that this becomes uh, the baseline of future negotiations not just in the auto industry, but in any other kind of sector. And this is a question the government has to have. In fact, generally speaking, Bill, the the challenge here is is many of us would say, we really don't think the government should be doing this at all. Let the private sector fund this, don't get into subsidizing, because it causes the government to have to pick winners and losers. In other words, the government is saying, well, strategically, we want to subsidize the auto industry, because we see it as a good thing going forward. 
But if a farmer comes up and says, hey, how about subsidizing me as I electrify what I'm doing? They go, no, no, we don't think of you in the same strategic sense that we see autos or pick any other industry, steel or something like that. No, we're not going to help you because we don't see you in the same boat as we do with the auto industry. So you create these winners and losers. And that's the danger. Also, the danger is that if you don't create winners and losers, then everybody wants a slice of the pie. And just how much can the government afford to dole out? So I'm going to be really curious as we look forward to future deals, whether it's in the auto industry or otherwise, does this become the baseline for discussions? Well, and we've already seen that happen, haven't we? I mean, I don't want to go too far down the side road here, but you know, even even the broadcasting and, and journalistic industries are looking at the same thing right now because the government subsidizes some of them, but not all of them, and they're kind of picking winners and losers there too. And you know, if if you're on the short list and then you don't make it, you're the one that said, "Hey, hey, this is unfair." Except you know, the guys at Stellantis right now, I think it's a pretty good deal, sort of Volkswagen. But you're right. I think everybody's going to look at this and say this is the way going forward. And it's, it, it, I think you're absolutely bang on here, Marvin. I think, you know, we have to put red flag this and say, is this what we want to do? Is this how we want to run our economy? And I'm not so sure this is where we want to do on, on, a, on a full-time basis anyway. Right. Now, the counter argument is that uh, Canada is being forced into doing this because of decisions being made in the United States. And that if those get reversed at any time, then we're not on the hook for these deals going forward and we won't make more of them in the future. Uh, this is kind of like, Bill, when you do talk to a car company and they say, well, we could locate our plant in Ontario or we could go to Alabama and Alabama is waiving property taxes for 10 years to get these kinds of jobs in their community. Ontario, what are you prepared to do? It's not at the community level. So uh, one I'll call it a bit of good news here, is that Ontario and Canada can make these deals, but the city of Hamilton can't compete against London and say, well, we'll waive property taxes to get those jobs here. The government has said, no, no, if we're going to do it, it'll be done at a provincial or federal level, but it does cause this kind of competition. And this is the new global reality. Everyone wants these good paying manufacturing jobs in their country. And so who knows what kind of deals Mexico are putting on the table or Costa Rica or Brazil or South Africa on a global market, these companies have choices and we've got to be competitive, but we don't want to give the, the house away at the same time. Well, exactly. Exactly. Uh, we'll be watching just see how they're going to respond to this in the future with other applications. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the conversation today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have had a number of discussions over the last little while about foreign interference. Uh, you know, a, a story even again yesterday, the prime minister is uh, talking about uh, getting a committee together. And he's saying now the conservatives are holding things up with the kind of, you know, materials that they want to go through and, and who's going to be on the committee, yada, yada, yada. But we are still being bombarded with disinformation and misinformation. Uh, and the more stories we're hearing about it, the more troubling this gets. And uh, this latest one is was in the Toronto Star. It's a report about a conference in Toronto on Sikh terrorism that was posted in May uh, of a now defunct Canadian think tank uh, with all sorts of information, quoting different professors from the University of Toronto and other places. Uh, the problem is none of it was true. None of it was true. It was totally fabricated, yet some agencies in India actually printed this stuff as news, uh, which is spreading disinformation in its most blatant form, I guess. 
So what is happening and what can we do about this? Our next guest will shed some light on that for us. He is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You saw the story in the stars, as I did, too, about what's going on, which I, I suppose in one context uh, shouldn't really surprise us because uh, I guess it was just a few weeks ago, uh, the prime minister's national security advisor said that uh, India is among the top sources of foreign interference in Canada, uh, which probably surprised quite a few people. But this seems to be a blatant example of just what they were referring to. Yeah, and I think that's the case, Bill. We've been so focused on what the fallout of China's foreign interference has been, and and their their plan has been very overt and, and very sloppy at times. So that you know, most of the countries in the Five I nations have experienced that. Now, India is becoming a very curious case in terms of where foreign interference is going. Uh, right now, it seems to be, and it may be too early to to understand how deep uh, these seeds are going and if it's a similar sort of plan that, uh, that that we see out of China where, you know, groups try to really take invested long-term interests in Canadian institutions. But right now where we're seeing it is certainly in the, uh, in the media. And this is something that India has domestically wrestled with for decades, right? It is the world's largest democracy. And even before there's been more popularization of misinformation and disinformation within social media and, and global media, that's always been a problem of Indian democracy. There's there's all sorts of little whispers that might start out in, in rural areas and suddenly just just sweep over uh, the, the place. And, and I speak to this as someone who's, who's worked in uh, the, the state of Maharashtra. So you find on the, the, the map there, Mumbai, Go about six hours to the to the east, and you're in the city of Pune, and then a bit further on. And even in those rural villages uh, where where I worked on a, a community healthcare work, you know, it, it took nothing to to stir up um, a misinformation or dissent. If it's a public health campaign, if it's politics, if it's uh, you know the 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 future price of uh, of livestock, like whatever it was, there was a lot of mechanisms already in India to get you know little mistruths out spreading fast so people use that for power and what's we're seeing now is that people are starting to capitalize on that in an already politically diverse democracy and there no democracy in the world has been immune to misinformation and disinformation but now we're seeing it you know pop up like wild uh if it's in the state of kerala if it's if it's in delhi if it's in maharashtra you name it there these are places now that are trying to battle with their own disinformation so the story with Canada here, but the the conference, uh, uh, you know, supporting uh, you know Sikh terrorism, it, like th that was completely fictitious, uh, like fictional. I mean, that is one of many little offshoots of of people in India uh, who are trying to create these narratives. And Canada has the largest Sikh uh, immigrant community in the world, so you have that. So Canada is known as a as an entity uh, within India and Indian politics, of course, but there's just enough disconnection between the two countries that if something were to be said about Canada, the fact checking behind it doesn't always follow through. And I think that's what they're really going for here. And so it's, it's an internal thing of, of internal politics and we're sort of being used as the, the storyline to, to feed that internal strife, I think. Who are they playing to here? Is, is it the domestic audience in India or is it the, the Sikh uh, population here or both? It's both, Bill, because you, you, you do have you do have a Sikh population here that still has the ability to vote uh, in India. And, and we, as we saw 
with the foreign interference in China, the the biggest worry uh, that China had was the messaging of overseas families coming back and sort of spreading, uh, you know, different ideas or different uh, oppositions to the the party in Beijing. And that's likewise the case here. It's a huge community and a very politically active community at that. So there are links that go between India and uh, and and Canada in that regard. The 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 consequence of this right now, and this just passed, I believe it was yesterday, where President Modi, uh, he he put forward an anti, well, I think it's the anti disinformation act, which I guess would equate to being an information act. But the idea is that you are the the government will now have the ability to censor anything that is seen as disinformation or fake news. Now, something like this, the fake conference that never happened, and the fake professors that were never at U of T. That seems like it would fit nicely into that package. But at the same time, we see Mr. Modi trying to use this new act to try to erase some of his history of, uh, you know, instigating uh, some uh, violence against Muslim communities in 2002. So he's trying to pin that as being fake news. And now that is a real big problem for India, because as the world's largest democracy, like I say, it's always sort of had these battles with misinformation, but now we've got state law coming into effect that's going to tell people what's fake and what's real, and even if something that's real is decided to be fake by the government. That's a big problem. Well, and it, it kind of circles back to the debate we're having here right now about the federal government legislation, isn't it, about, about social media and content uh, and misinformation and disinformation too. And, and the biggest criticism uh, was that, okay, who's going to make that determination? Is it going to be the government? Are you serious? You want to give them that power? Uh, and, and what you've just described here, they're going to say, well, look at, look at president Modi. You don't want that happening. You don't want that person with that much authority and that much sway that they can say what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false. Yeah. And the minute you have an authority, a figure or a government that's saying hey, this is this is what's true and this didn't happen over here that begins the pathway from democracy to tyranny and that is that goes right back to plato right that's the the the, the mm-hmm. ancient greeks were 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 wise about that uh the the way to, to to really get around disinformation and this is something that again is is so much in our face now and even in the university we're we're trying to figure out you know, how to combat this in, in our own classes about how we get students to sharpen the research skills in this way. But really what it comes down to ultimately is that if you are in a position where government is telling you which way the sun comes up and you're not making that decision for yourself, that's already the first step in line that we go towards tyranny. What, what needs to really be put in place, if it's in India or Canada, are systems that really allow people to be informed deeply about subjects that matter to their lives and they themselves make the conclusions and all the 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 space that's being used in social media i'm not saying all of it but i'd say almost all of it is really these quick hits of of opinion and strife and we see how vicious uh, you know comment sections can get on social media there's so much hostility there that it often it's come to a point where it's it, it's not being used as a space to do those deep dives into into these issues and often uh when when you do see something like click this link or follow this and here's the truth about x subject or here's the what really happened and it's 25 pages deep that's sometimes your misinformation right when you see people really investing to get their own opinion of a story out but i i, I wonder that bill if we if we just were beginning to to see in our democracies 
around the world that there's just less space for people to sit down and have a good good yaw over what these subjects are and let them themselves come up with their own conclusions. Well, and you don't know what those conclusions are going to be. I mean, the, the story we're talking about here, the, the example, uh, the think tank that, that was, well, served as the basis for this is the International Forum for Rights and Security. Uh, it's it's Canadian, essentially, a Canadian website mm-hmm. started in 2012. It's a former liberal MP that uh, that owned this this site. Uh, you got to figure where's where's the the supervision, where's the oversight about what's going on uh, that they can use this stuff and blatantly put stuff up here, which is well lies. But, and uh, and I don't know you know exactly as you say whether it was the the Sikh population here or certainly back over there too. But when you look at that, I, I guess that's one one of the the criteria, and I guess for spreading this stuff, you try to find uh, what people are going to perceive to be a credible web page or, or or news source and and throw it on there and people think well it's on there it's got to be true exactly and then once the story gets out and it goes through those whispering little networks that we do see uh around india once it goes out that becomes truth even just briefly and now now the the exercise is to try to disconnect people from saying well remember that thing that happened over here that really didn't happen but you you've planted the seed of of what the purpose of making that lie was about in the first place that's hard to wash away and that's where politicians will take opportunities with well, remember what happened to this guy oh i think i do remember this conference that happened over here sounds familiar oh geez you know and then you get the opinion formed around that so it's one of these things where it's it's like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube it is difficult and uh even though it it may be completely fake and and we just see that some of these uh i guess like even modi mr modi himself he's been he's doing he's done well to to twist truth in in his uh perception of 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 indian politics as well um donald trump is another case where there's a lot of just outright lying that goes on and he seems to be vindicated for it and there's more of that 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 goes on and uh even brazil's another country uh that that fell victim to that and i hope i hope that there's the ability to start thinking seriously about trying to cut this off at the head and uh, getting our media spaces into a realm where they can be trusted like you say there has to be accountability for the complete fake news and yet not worry about governments telling us, ah, we are going to decide what is fake and what's real. Well, sure. I mean, you know, I don't know how many years I've been in the business that I've heard people say, well, it was in the paper, so it's got to be true. You know, they wouldn't print it if it wasn't true, uh, That's right. which is why they use, a, a, like say, a, a source like this. The problem, I guess, from our standpoint, though, Doctor, is uh, here I've read the story in the Toronto Star that says, no, that was all BS. None of that was true. If you didn't see this story, you're going to read that and you're going to say, well, that's the truth. You know, I haven't mm-hmm. heard a contrary opinion, so that must be the fact uh, of what mm-hmm. exactly happened and who said what, and and that's what you're going to carry with you. Yeah, and and that's 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 right on the money. And in India, there's another group called Alt News that's trying to do the fact checking as well. But you know, the fact checking takes time, and then you know the story's already passed. They're on to a new subject, you know, and uh, and and that's really the momentum behind disinformation in that way is that you want people to not actually go do the the fact checking you want that rumor to circulate and there's often an appetite for it people people kind of crave this this sort of uh malicious content and say oh yeah see they hate us or oh there's people who hate them right well there's an attractiveness to it and uh 
and to try to counter it can be incredibly tough. Yeah, well, and and that's how Trump got his message across too. I mean, you know, if you if if you don't like politics and and you don't like politicians and you don't like people telling you what to do, uh, it's easy to listen to anti-vax rhetoric or any any kind of rhetoric. What it does, it it substantiates what's already in your head, doesn't it? It does. It really does. And I think what what in this case with with India right now is it'll be interesting to to sort of peel back and figure out who is behind this disinformation, right? Who's actually leading the charge? We we've, we've seen again Modi, uh President Modi has has you know been disingenuous on the podium uh many times during his uh, his reign. And I don't mean just like, you know, politics disingenuous. I mean like here's a here's a lie. No, this fact didn't happen. So we will have to be concerned if we see the government in India itself taking to this tactic in trying to deal with relationships with other countries. Now that's what we really need to be be concerned about. But hopefully it just remains something where it's a it's a few enthusiasts that are that are seeing the political capital of trying to spread fake news in this way. I hope. That's my hope. But I I you know, again, crystal balls are often cloudy. <laughs> well, we have to be diligent too though, don't we? Uh because I mean, here we are. I mean, India, India is a quote unquote ally of this country. Uh, so you would think that, okay, this sort of thing is not going to go on back and forth. You'd expect it from Putin. You'd expect it from China, but not from India. But there are elements within that country that are using that relationship to, to their advantage, saying, well, yeah, they wouldn't dare think that anything that, that we're going to print would be, you know, total falsehoods, but it is. And it's up mm-hmm. to us, I guess, to, to look at with just about everything, I guess, with a skeptical eye now. Well, exactly. And the thing is with India, uh, as much as they are an ally, as much as they've they foster, uh, you know, global engagement and uh, and dealings with the West. They do still have strong ties to Putin himself, right? There's a lot of yep. weapons that yep. get run back and forth. The it was the Soviet Union that stocked up uh, India with its military hardware uh, from the 70s going forward. So there's there's a lot of trade still between the two. Uh, energy trade uh, is another thing, and we've seen, you know, there's been some business. Uh, very powerful business oligarchs in India who even been tied to dealing with North Korea, right? So it's a it's a huge place that uh, you can get away with a lot of shady stuff when no one's looking. But exactly. you know, I think that's the thing is is if we're gonna stand up to the strongmen, if we're gonna stand up to the fake news, uh, the way to do it is to try to find avenues of transparency. Because the thing is with democracies in it, democracy in India, the people still have the power to. To, to change government. Uh, mm-hmm. China, not so much. North Korea, not so much. Russia, nope, not right at the moment. So you've got you got this this very precious state. And I, I do believe that that we will well, we've got to just see some leadership coming up in India, uh, maybe even at the state level to try to counter this stuff. I always kind of look to the state of Kerala in the south to see how politics run there. It's a, it's a it's a very precious part of India where you know, uh, there's the social programs are are just better protected. There's there's uh, more women participating in government. There often women leadership. You know, it's a it's a very avant garde uh, democracy that state of Kerala. And I would uh, I, I think that's where I'll be watching in the weeks ahead as uh, as things evolve with this with this thing. Well, we'll stay in touch as that develops. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks very much. Take care.
Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.